Good morning, Gate City. Hope this Sunday morning finds you all well out there in virtual lands. And as Courtney just mentioned, yes, um, at this point, we're very excited after, uh, gosh, what has it been since March? I think that was the last time that we all gathered together in this building. Again, the church is more than a building, but it's nice to be able to be in person. And at this point, we're planning on meeting in person uh, next week. And um, I'm going to go ahead and jump into the message, and then the worship team's going to come back up. And at the end of the service, I'm going to give you all some very important and pertinent information about us gathering together next week. So stay tuned for that. Um, I'm going to give the details about that towards the end or right before the end of the service. So we're going to go ahead and jump in. We're going to continue our series this morning that we began last week, a series where we are studying the book of Revelation. And I'm calling this series, spoiler alert, God wins. Now, why am I calling a study on the book of Revelation, God wins? When you think about the book of Revelation, so many people think about it uh, being about the end of the world or the mark of the beast or the antichrist. And, and there's all of those elements that's in the book. But the main point, the big idea of the book of Revelation is that God wins, God triumphs uh, through the person of Jesus Christ. God triumphs over evil. He thwarts the devil. Uh, God brings justice and peace and healing to planet Earth. He restores creation. Uh, he restores and heals us. And he comes to dwell with us forever and ever as heaven comes completely down to planet Earth. So again, God wins. Now, if you didn't tune into last week's service, I would encourage you to check it out. Um, I shared some key information about the book of Revelation that's going to help us to understand uh, this fascinating and oftentimes misunderstood book. So again, if you didn't catch last week's message, uh, you can view it on the page that you're currently looking at and viewing uh, the service right now. Just scroll down a little bit further and you should be able to find uh, last week's service. Or if you would like, you can go to our website at gatecityvineyard.com and you can be able to download the podcast there. Now, for our time this morning, we're going to look at the Apostle John's vision of the resurrected Christ. If you remember last week, it's the Apostle John who wrote the book of Revelation. And so we're going to look at this incredible vision that he had uh, of the resurrected Christ. And I'll go ahead and tell you, we're going to spend a couple of weeks in this section of the book of Revelation. As I mentioned last week, we're not going to look at every chapter or every uh, verse in the book of Revelation, but we are going to take our time and look at the gist and, and uh, the, the core and the meat of it so that we can understand uh, the, the core message of this book. So again, two weeks, we're going to start looking at this vision this week, and we're going to complete looking at this vision uh, next week. So if you want to, please go ahead and turn your Bibles to Revelation chapter 1, verses 9 through 20. And this is what we read. I, John, your brother and companion in the suffering and kingdom and patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. On the Lord's day, and the Lord's day being the first day of the week, being Sunday. So John had this vision on a Sunday. On the Lord's day, I was in the spirit, and I heard behind me a loud voice like a trumpet, 
which said, write on a scroll what you see and send it to the seven churches, to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira, Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. I turned around to see the voice that was speaking to me. And when I turned, I saw seven golden lampstands, and among the lampstands was someone like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet and with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and coming out of his mouth was a sharp double-edged sword. His face was like the sun shining in all its brilliance. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead. Duh, you think? Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now look, I am alive forevermore or forever and ever, and I hold the keys of death in Hades. Write, therefore, what you have seen, what is now and what will take place later, the mystery of the seven stars that you saw in my right hand and of the seven golden lampstands is this. The seven stars are the angels of the seven churches, and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. Heavenly Father, as we continue our study this morning in the book of Revelation, Father, I just pray for everyone here this morning, wherever it is that we're gathering, Father, whether it be in our living rooms or in our dining rooms, we know we have different people from the United States, Father, that, that are watching it. Holy Spirit, you're ubiquitous. You're everywhere. And I just pray this morning, Father, that you would all give us a, a vision of the resurrected Christ and his glory and his power. And Father, I pray that as we gaze upon the resurrected Christ and his glory, that you would transform us. And Lord, we pray and we ask these things in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen. Now, the first church that I was a part of once I became a Christian, um, I remember on one Sunday during my time at that particular church, one of the members of that church, an older lady, gosh, this was probably almost 20 years ago, so I know she's already gone home uh, to be with the Lord. But during this particular service, she shared a testimony about a dream that she had of Jesus uh, during the, the week before the service on Sunday. And um, so she shared about it during testimony time. And, and I'll be honest with you, I, I can't remember what the message it was that she shared about this dream that she had of Jesus. I don't remember the content of it. Uh, I do remember her being very emotional. It was a very emotional experience as she was sharing it. She was crying. Tears were coming down her face. She was shaking. Um, so I remember that. But what stands out to me the most uh, with her sharing is what took place after the service. And, and this, this was myself included. After the service was over, a good number of people who were there that day, we all surrounded her. We all ran up to her and we had one thing on our minds and one thing only, and that was this. We all couldn't wait to ask her, what did he look like? What did Jesus look like? Tell us, can you... What, what, did, what did you see? How did, what did he look like? And, and the lady said, I, I don't know what he looked like. She said, Dur during my dream, I, I did see some sort of image, but I, I, didn't see, I didn't see his face. I didn't see any details about his appearance. The way that I knew that it was him was based upon what he said and how he said it. 
She said there, there was this inner knowing, this inner seeing to where I, I knew that it was Jesus, but as far as what he looked like and in a description of his, his appearance, I, I, I can't tell you that. And some of you might be thinking right now, well, Todd, what does Jesus look like? You're a pastor. Come on. You should be able to know. You should be able to tell us what does Jesus look like. Folks, I'll go ahead and let you know I don't have a clue to what Jesus looks like. I don't know for certain what Jesus looks like. There, there weren't any cameras back in the first century. And in fact, the Bible doesn't even tell us. The Bible does not give us any sort of description about what Jesus looks like. And even though we can't know for certain about what Jesus looks like, I can tell you this with almost absolute certainty. And that is Jesus did not have blue eyes. Jesus did not have white, creamy colored skin. All right, let's not forget Jesus, the man Jesus, Jesus in flesh. Right, Jesus is the only person, the only being in the entire universe that has two natures. Jesus is not God Jr. Jesus is fully God. He is fully God, but at the same time, Jesus is also fully human. He is fully man. And that man, that human part of Jesus' nature, Jesus was Semitic. Jesus was a Middle Eastern uh, first century Jew which almost certainly means that Jesus had dark hair or olive colored skin or even darker colored skin. That, that's basically all I can tell you about what Jesus actually looks like. And while I'm just as fascinated as, as other people are about what Jesus looks like, the appearance of Jesus is, is not what ultimately matters. Right? Jesus didn't come from heaven uh, to down here on earth for the sake of just appearances. Jesus didn't pop on the earth and said, hey, look at me. Take a photo. That's not what ultimately matters about Jesus. No, Jesus came here to save us from our sins. Jesus came here uh, to reveal to us who God is and what God is like. He came to earth to restore and to redeem God's creation that all fell and, and became tainted during the fall. So what Jesus looks like, even though it's fascinating, doesn't really ultimately matter. Jesus' appearance is not the point. And folks, the same is true with this vision of Jesus that John was given. Even though John actually knows what Jesus literally looks like in the flesh, the point of this vision is, is not about giving us a physical description of the way that Jesus looks like. That's not what it's describing here. Nor is it telling us what Jesus currently looks like in heaven right now. What's being said here about Jesus is absolutely true. But the truth that it's communicating to us is not about what Jesus literally looks like. But rather it is telling us these images. They're telling us they're designed and they're given to tell us about what Jesus is like. Right? They are meant to tell us about Jesus's nature. They are meant to tell us about Jesus's character. And these intense, these, these vivid images that we see of Jesus in this passage, they are also meant to create a sense of wonder and awe and worship towards him. I like the way the late pastor theologian John, Ston, John Stott puts it. He says this, John uses his illusions not as a code in which each symbol requires separate and exact translation, 
but rather for their evocative and emotive power. This is not photographic art. His aim is to set the echoes of memory and association ringing. The humbling sense of the sublime and the majestic which men experience at the sight of a roaring cataract. That's just another way to say waterfall. Or the midday sun is the nearest equivalent to the awe evoked by a vision of the divine. John has seen the risen Christ clothed in all the attributes of deity. And he wishes to call forth from his readers the same response of overwhelming and annihilating wonder which he experienced in his prophetic trance. And folks, I hope this is what happens to us as we go throughout this series in the book of Revelation, as we continue and we see these vivid images of Jesus, that they too will create a sense of awe and wonder and majesty as we gaze and as we look upon him. Now, as I just mentioned a few moments ago, we're going to spend a couple of weeks in this passage alone. And next week, I'm going to start to break down all of these vivid images of Jesus and what they tell us and what, they're, what we're meant to understand about him. But what I want to do for the rest of my time here this morning is I want to begin to unpack a little bit of the practicality of this vision. Because all throughout the book of Revelation, we're going to see over and over again vivid images like this of Jesus. And it's very easy to see and to, to read a vision like this and to see these images, these wild images, and start to think, you know, what good is this? How, how does such a wild vision help me out practicality? What does it have to do with me and my life right now? Right now, I don't have a job. What does this vision have to do with me being afraid and and, and being fearful? What does this vision have to do with the temptation or the sin that I'm struggling with? You know, I'm great. It's great and wonderful for John that he had this incredible vision of of Jesus some 2,000 years ago. But what exactly does it have to do with me? How can such a vision help me right here? right now in a practical way with what it is that I am facing. If that is what you're thinking, great, wonderful. I'm glad you asked that question. And I'll begin to put it and begin to answer it like this. If you're a follower of Jesus this morning, God's primary will for your life is to know him in a saving, intimate relationship made possible through the person of Jesus Christ. And along with that, God's primary will for your life through that intimate relationship that you have with him through Jesus Christ is to have you change and to have you and I progressively transform and become more and more like the person of Jesus Christ. Folks, God, you know, yes, God cares about your health. God cares about your job. God cares about your fears. He cares about your finances. He cares about your kids. He cares about your house payment. God cares about every single thing in your life. All of those things matter to him. But God's primary concern, God's primary will and desire for your life and for mine is to know him in an intimate fashion, in an intimate way through Jesus and through, you know, time and and progression to make you and I become more and more like his son, Jesus. And so the big question is this, well, how do I become more like Jesus? How do I grow? How do I mature and become more like him? Is it by following a, a bunch of religious rules? 
Just keeping rules, is it about, you know, isolating myself from temptation and the rest of the world? Uh, does becoming more like Jesus, does that mean that I just, I just try really hard and, and pull myself up by the bootstraps and white knuckle it and grin and bear it and I'm, I'm going to be like Jesus more and more, I'm just going to try really hard. Is that how we grow and become more like Jesus? And the answer is no, 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 no. I'm now going to move from this vision that John gives us, and we're going to go look at a passage that the Apostle Paul wrote. And th these are connected. And Paul in this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 18, Paul in this passage gives us the core source for growth and transformation in our lives. Paul says this, And we all with unveiled face, Beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image. That meaning the image of Jesus being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord, who is the spirit. Now, if you and I ever hope to change. If you and I ever hope to grow and to become more mature and, and, and to see victory and more victory in our lives, well, that means that you and I, if we want to have hope to become more like Jesus, Paul here is saying that it is directly connected to the degree that you and I are beholding the glory of Jesus. In, in treating him and holding him up above every other thing in our lives. Again, Paul says it's to the degree, transformation, it's to the degree, it's connected to the degree that, that you and I are beholding the glory of Jesus. And with what I'm getting ready to say here over the next few moments, if this doesn't resonate with you, if, if it just, you could care absolutely less, it's the furthest thing from your mind, you have no desire, you have no interest in what it is I'm getting ready to say, you may want to check yourself. You, you, you may want to have a, a serious heart-to-heart -heart with God if transformation or growth just doesn't really concern you. Because here's the thing. One of the things that we see throughout the scriptures is this, is that when a person will become born again, will we place our faith and our trust in Jesus Christ, that there's an impulse, there, there, there's a desire that is there to become more like Jesus. Or as Paul says, to go from one degree or another. Paul says we, we are transformed from one degree into another to become more and more like Jesus. So again, Paul is saying that when we are born again, the glory of God comes into us to abide in us through the spirit of God. And it's meant to build momentum, momentum throughout our Christian life to where, you know, progressively we become conformed more and more to the image and the likeness of Jesus all the way up into the point to when Jesus comes back, Jesus brings the kingdom in fruition to earth, and then that is when we will be completely transformed into what Jesus is like. And so notice here, Paul is describing all Christians. And if we had gone back and, and read the previous verses from 2 Corinthians, we would discover that Paul is using this language to, to set a contrast between uh, the people of God under the, the New Testament and a contrast under the people of God under the Old Testament. 
And what Paul is doing in this passage is he's hearkening back to when Moses said to God in, in Exodus chapter 33 and, and 34. If you remember that, that passage, that, that's where Moses goes up on Mount Sinai and, and he receives the, the, the Ten Commandments. And before uh, Moses receives the Ten Commandments, Moses says to God, God, I, I want to see your glory. I, I want to see a, a glimpse of how glorious and how wonderful you are. Would you show me that? And, and God says to Moses, Moses, I can't show you my full glory because you'll die. You'll be dead. And so God does something very interesting. God says, Moses, I, I can't show you my full glory because it, it will kill you, but, but I'm still going to show you a glimpse of myself in my glory. And so what I'm going to do is I want you to go. I'm going to place you in this cleft in the rock. And as you're there, I'm going to pass by. And so we, we see this and, and you, you're going to laugh at me. I, I hope I don't offend anybody when I say this. But when you read that story, ultimately what is taking place is this, is that God gives Moses a divine mooning. God actually mooned Moses. Go and read the passage. We're told that as God passed him by, Moses saw and witnessed the backside of God. Seriously, that, that, that's, that's what happened. And so after... Moses sees the backside of God. We are told that, that Moses' face, it started to glow. In the intensity of the glow of, that was on Moses' face after seeing the divine tushy there, God's backside, the people of Israel said, Moses, we can't stand it. You need to put a veil over your face. Cover your face because the glory that is coming off of your face from seeing God, it, it, it's just we, we can't take it. But see, Paul says this in, in, in 2 Corinthians. Again, he's hearkening to that time in, in Exodus. But Paul, in this passage that we just read, he said, what was true for the Old Testament people of God it is not true for us under the new covenant. Under the new covenant, you and I, we don't need to have our faces veiled. Our faces have been unveiled. They have been uncovered to, to behold the glory of God. And as you and I begin to behold the glory of God, we are therefore then transformed. And so you may be saying, well, Todd, well, how do we see this glory? How do I capture a glimpse of the glory of Jesus? Well, Right after 2 Corinthians 3, Paul goes into, in chapter 4, he begins to talk about how, you know, that God shines the light of his glory into our hearts through the gospel. Through the gospel, through focusing on uh, who Jesus is. Whereas Paul saw the glory of the resurrected Christ uh, on the Damascus road with physical eyes, you and I primarily see the glory of Christ when we hear the gospel. In other words, what was for Paul a, 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 a visual encounter is now for us an oral in, in, encounter about what we saw, where we see who he's like, God is like. And that this process of transformation that, that Paul mentions comes by way as we behold the glory of Jesus. And this is something very true. In fact, I, I want you to type this in in the comment sections below, and it's this. And wherever it is that you're at, how about we all say this out loud together? Apart from beholding, there is 
no becoming. Let me say that again. Apart from beholding, there is no becoming. Right? All of the other strategies, all of the other efforts that we, we try to make happen, again, under our own power, under our own authority, well, we were all going to be disappointed and it's not going to work unless you and I, on a consistent basis, are beholding the glory and the goodness and the grace of God. I love the way Greg Boyd puts it. He says this. He says, our spiritual transformation depends upon us seeing the image of God for what it really is. We are transformed to the, the degree that the spirit removes the veil that hides the truth of the image so that we can see the glory of God uncovered in the one who is his image, Jesus Christ. In 2 Corinthians, this point is made through the use of the story in Exodus about Moses having to veil the brightness of God's glory after his encounter with God. When one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. Christ alone uncovers the true God for us. All who know God through Christ may with unveiled faces see the glory of the Lord as though reflected in a mirror. And as we behold the glory, we are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. When our unveiled minds behold the radiant beauty of the true God in Jesus Christ, we are transformed into his beauty. As we receive the love of God in Christ, we are transformed into his love. As we fix our eyes on Jesus, we gradually become like Jesus. Now going back to Paul here, and I, and I really appreciate what Paul says here, that as far as being transformed, it's, it's a progression. In other words, it's not instantaneous. It's progressive. It's by God's grace. And sometimes we, you know, it's, we, we take two steps forward and, and then, oh, it's, it's three steps back. Sometimes it's five steps forward and then, oh, it's, it's, it's four steps back. Again, notice Paul doesn't say transform yourselves. Paul says, no, we are being transformed as we behold the glory of Jesus. Beholding is a way of becoming. And folks, you see this principle in Scripture over and over and over again. And that is you and I are ultimately going to become the, the thing that it is that we are beholding. You and I will take on the qualities of whatever it is that we admire and cherish the most. Whatever it is that we are focusing our gaze upon and our, and our sight on, that's what we're going to become. And you see this truth over and over and over again throughout the scriptures. And folks, you see this truth not only throughout the scriptures, you also see this, this truth of, of beholding and becoming in the world of science. You may have heard of this study before. A few years back at the University of Chicago, they did a study where they took three different groups of people. And what they did is they started it out, they wanted them to do free throws. They, they wanted to do a study to see how people could grow and improve their free throwing. And so the first group that they had, they did this study for a month. And so group number one, they went to the gym, they practiced free throwing an hour a day, every day for those 30 days. The second group in the study, they did absolutely nothing. 
All they were told to do is to visualize. Just just picture the basket, picture the ball, picture you shooting the free throws. You don't have to practice. We just want you to see yourself making free throws. And so the third group, they weren't asked to visualize or practice. They were just asked to do absolutely nothing. And so... After 30 days, they went back and they did, they, they tested them again. They actually brought everybody back to do free throws. And so the first group, the group that practiced every day for an hour for a month, their free throw shooting improved by 24%. As you can imagine, the third group that didn't do absolutely anything, well, their free throw shooting didn't improve at all. But the startling fact was this. The group that just visualized and saw themselves shooting and making three free throws, their free throw shooting percentage improved by 23%. So again, we see this. There's there's a truth, again, about beholding and becoming what it is that we are becoming. So Paul in this passage says that fixing your eyes on Jesus is transformative. And folks, the vision that we're going to unpack more next week that John had of the resurrected Christ, it is also meant to be transformative for you and I. Beholding is becoming, and I'm going to close with this. I'm going to leave you on a question to ponder. And you may be thinking about this right now. You may be thinking, well, you know what, Todd? I, I don't feel like I'm, I'm really growing. I don't feel like I'm becoming more and more like Jesus. Why is that? Well, let me ask you, what is it are you beholding? On a regular basis, where do you choose to fix your gaze and your focus on? Or better yet, I should say, who? You know, we live in a day and age where we have so many distractions. So much of us, we're doing this. this our gaze is like this. We're, we're doing this. Our gaze is on Facebook. Our gaze is on Netflix. Our gaze is on the news. Our gaze and our focus is oftentimes on every other thing besides the person of Jesus Christ. And if you're sitting here this morning and you're saying, you know what? That's me. That's me. And I don't feel like I'm growing. I'm becoming like Jesus. Well, duh, duh. So I'm going to encourage you, with God's help, if you have a desire to grow and to become more like the person of Jesus Christ, again, that's God's will for your life, for us from glory to glory, from progression to progression, to become more and more like the image of his son. The key way that you and I do that is that we fix our gaze and our sight upon the glory in the goodness of Jesus. As the classic worship song tells us, turn your eyes upon Jesus, look full into his wonderful face, and the things of earth will grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. We're going to pick this chapter back up next week. But again, ask God to show you this week where is, it, where, where is it that I'm focusing too much time, focusing too much of my sight that is taking away from me, taking the time to just gaze and to ponder and to wonder in awe and, and, and on the goodness and the glory of Jesus. So worship team comes back up. Heavenly Father, we just pray right now. Lord, I pray in your grace and your goodness. Help us to see moment by moment, day by day, we're all being formed and being transformed into something.
And the things that we set our sights on, the things that we listen to, the things that we see, the, the things, again, that we just spend our time focusing on, they're all forming and shaping us, some good, some not so good. Father, I pray right now that you would help every one of us, that you would stoke that desire in, in, in your sons and your daughters for us to have a hunger and a desire for your son, Jesus Christ. That you would stoke that desire, that you would awaken our hearts to want to see him, to seek after him, to pursue him, to get a glimpse of him. And then as we look upon the goodness of who you are, God, in Jesus Christ, as we fix our sight and our gaze upon you, Father, I pray that you would transform us. Fathers, as we look at your goodness and your power and your glory and your grace and your love and your mercy for us, that's how we grow. That's how we face temptation. That's how we have the strength to face the things that we're afraid of, the things that we're fearful of, because our thoughts and our, and our vision is upon someone who is bigger and stronger than the things that we face in this world. So, Father, again, I pray that as we continue throughout this book, where we're going to see all these vivid images of you, I pray, Father God, that again, that in that core, in that depth of who we are, that we could see you for who you are and your goodness. And as we have that encounter with you, as everybody who's ever had an encounter with you, we never stay the same. And, Father, I pray that as we sing this song again, just pray that you would help us to focus on you, to give you the glory and the honor and the worship that you deserve. And I pray that we would be able to sense your Holy Spirit, not just in our heads, but we could really have an inner knowing, an inner peace, something palpable with your presence. Show yourself to your people here this morning. And Lord, we love you and we thank you. And we pray and we ask these things in the name of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, and all God's people said, Amen.